dealing with the family. Again, looking this Lord's Day, the second part of the sermon began last Lord's Day, dealing with the duties of husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and verse 28. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Last Lord's Day, dear ones, we considered the role of the husband as the divinely appointed leader within the marriage. His leadership comes not from his physical strength to keep his wife in check or from his threats to frighten her into submission, but rather his leadership comes from the Most High God. Thus, use of physical force and threats do not establish a man's lawful authority in a marriage. If anything, they rather lead to a complete disrespect for that authority. For it is not mere might that gives right to rule. It is God's appointment that gives right to rule, as He says through His inspired Apostle in Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Thus, dear ones, husbands, and I speak to the husbands this Lord's Day, husbands, let us not look to the world, whether movie stars, whether military leaders or political leaders, let us not look to the world to find examples of leadership which we should follow in leading our own wives. Rather, let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is a sinless and perfect example of leadership. Let us imitate His courage in standing for the truth. Let us imitate His service in ministering to His bride at the expense of His own comfort. Let us follow His example and His care in protecting His bride. Men, let us be faithful as Christ was faithful to His bride. But how is a husband to maintain the divine authority given him by God to lead in his marriage if it is not by physical force or by verbal threats? How does he maintain that authority within the home? Men, we are to be an example to our wives of Christ. And such an example that our wives see Christ in our leadership through our love and affection, through our protection of them, through our self-sacrificing service, through our courage, again, to stand for the truth, through our encouragement of them when they are down and need that encouragement, 
and even through our reproof when that is necessary. Husbands, if we want to rid the word submission and the word authority of all the negative connotations that others might have of those words, then let us grow in the grace and the knowledge of imitating the Lord Jesus Christ as a leader. Let us pour out our hearts to the Lord that He would make us leaders like Himself. It's interesting to note that when Timothy's lawful authority came under attack within the church there in Ephesus, because of Timothy's youthfulness. Paul did not tell Timothy, Timothy, show them who's boss. Let's see some heads roll around there in Ephesus. To the contrary, the Apostle Paul first instructed Timothy that the way to bring those who opposed his authority to the point where they would willingly Uh, submit to that authority was by his own example. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle commends to Timothy this instruction. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You want to bring them around, Timothy, so that they respect your authority, set an example before them of all the things that they themselves should be. Let them follow that example. Yes, reproof indeed by those who are in authority is needed at times, but dear ones, reproof will simply fall on deaf ears if it has not been preceded by love, affection, humility, gentleness, courage, self-sacrificial service, and faithfulness. It simply will not get through. And so, men, you do not have to struggle with your wife for authority in your marriage. Why? Because it was not your wife who gave to you that authority. It was God who gave you that authority. A wife's opposition or lack of submission to her husband's authority does not in any way alter who has given that authority, namely God. It does not alter the authority that He has bestowed upon you in the least. Any more than those who oppose God can affect the authority that God has. Opposition does not affect authority that is lawfully given. It's a matter of knowing, even in cases of opposition, how we are to use the authority God has given and not to abuse it. And so I say, 
this lawful authority that has been given to you men is rightly maintained in your marriage, not by being a bully or a coward, but by being an example to your wife of Jesus Christ. And I would also proffer to you that the ordinary way by which the Lord will affect a willing and cheerful spirit within the heart of your wife is by your example that you set before her as you lead her into the paths of righteousness and truth. This Lord's Day, we move on to consider in greater detail the duty of husbands to love their wives. The Apostle Paul leaves husbands with two models to imitate in loving their wives. First of all, the model that he gives in Christ, in Christ's love for his church. And the second model is that of a husband's own natural love for his body. That a husband is love his wife as he loves himself. And so let us look at these two models of love that have been given to us by God. And as husbands, let us this Lord's Day check ourselves, each one, against these models of love and seek by God's grace to grow into ever greater conformity to the image of Christ with regard to these matters. First of all, then, Christ's model in his love for the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Here the Apostle Paul draws attention to the fact that Christ is the Savior and the sanctifier of his bride, the church. He did not save his bride because she was attractive, because she was holy, because she was respectful or pleasing to him in any way. To the contrary, his bride was ungodly, ugly due to her own sin, disrespectful in every way of God's authority, and displeasing to him in every possible way. Dear ones, we were not saved because of any good thing within us, but because of His undeserving love which was freely showered upon us in Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, the Apostle Paul makes this so abundantly clear of our own unworthiness of Christ's love when he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Oh, the depths, the incomprehensible depths of Christ's love for His people. But our heavenly husband, dear ones, has not only purchased us unto Himself by laying down His life and suffering the wrath of God for us. He has as well, and He continues His work by sanctifying us throughout our earthly pilgrimage. He not only has justified and declared us righteous through His death and through His resurrection, He has not only imputed to us His glorious righteousness at that point in time, but from that point onward, He continues to sanctify His bride throughout her whole time here upon the earth until she finally reaches that point when she will be transformed in all the glory that the Lord bestows upon His bride and He glorifies her. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, this work of sanctification which the Lord has begun, we are promised that He will not stop or discontinue, that He will accomplish it right up to the very end. And so, dear ones, cling to the promise of God. God is not going to let you die on the vine if you belong to Him. You may fall, you may fail, but the Lord Jesus Christ does not fail His own. He will not turn any away who come unto Him trusting in Christ alone. He says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will perform it. That is, He will complete it. He will accomplish it until the very day of Christ. And so we do not look to Jesus Christ, dear ones, alone in faith believing for our, our justification, not simply to, to Christ for our justification, but we also look to Christ alone in faith for our sanctification. For you see, dear ones, the goal toward which our justification and sanctification are directed is nothing less than conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And His work will not be completed until we attain that goal. Conformity to Christ. Well, how, according to our text, does the Lord accomplish our sanctification? This being the goal, that He might sanctify and cleanse it. That He might present it, that is the church, to Himself a glorious church. That being the goal. How does He accomplish this? Well, the text 
tells us by the Spirit of God in verse 26 that he accomplishes it with the washing of water by the Word. That is, he accomplishes it through his appointed means of grace like that of baptism, like that of the Word of God as it's read and as it's preached. That's how he accomplishes our sanctification. For in baptism, all of the promises that are related to our salvation, sanctification, and glorification are represented and sealed in baptism. And in the read and preached Word of God, those promises that are represented in baptism are declared so that we can cling to them by faith and take them to be our own as God offers us those promises so freely in the Gospel. Well, then why is our sanctification hindered at times? Very simply because we are not availing ourselves of His appointed means of sanctification. We're not using the means as God has appointed. And when we do not use the means as God has appointed, we will hinder that sanctification. And so we must avail ourselves of the Word, the sacraments, and prayer to our edification and growth in Christ. Paul has, dear ones, brought before husbands the model of Christ to imitate. Not because husbands can actually save or sanctify their wives, for that is the work of God alone. But in order to leave for husbands a pattern to follow, For just as the Lord Jesus Christ so loved and cared for His own bride that He gave Himself for her salvation and sanctification in a similar manner, not in the same manner, but in a similar manner, a husband is to love his wife and he is to love her eternal soul so much that he becomes a divinely appointed means which God may use to bring her to salvation and sanctification in Christ. You see, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16. He says, For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? It doesn't mean that that the husband or wife have the power to actually save, but to be the means by which God would bring a husband or wife to salvation. As Paul brings forth the example of Christ, dear ones, so as to impress upon husbands their love for their wives, that it is first manifested in their spiritual care and nourishment, which contribute to their wives' salvation and sanctification. That's how he first and foremost loves his wife, by caring for her soul. Husbands, dear, uh, dear ones, as we consider this issue, husbands, very clearly, listen, Husbands should not only focus upon the spiritual well-being of their wives, as we shall see in just a moment, 
But there certainly is a priority here inasmuch as the body will perish, but the soul will either pass into glory at death or into eternal torment at death. This implies many different duties on the part of a husband in loving his wife in this way when he cares for her soul. I want to enumerate several duties. This is not an exhaustive, comprehensive list. But this should give you, by way of summary, some very important responsibilities and duties that follow from the fact that we are to care for the souls of our wives, men. First of all, a godly husband will fervently pray for the salvation and sanctification of his wife. For he will acknowledge that he himself is powerless to change and transform his wife. In many ways, husbands, that should be a great relief to realize we ourselves cannot change our wives. That's not our responsibility to change our wives. Our responsibility is to be a means by which that change occurs, but it is up to God to change our wives. And so, therefore, we will spend, on behalf of our wives, time each day upon our knees, crying out to God to bless our wives, crying out to God to fill them with His Spirit, to draw them unto Himself. We will cry out to God for our wives like Moses cried out to God on behalf of Israel. We will cry out to God on behalf of our wives, men, as Paul cried out to God on behalf of Israel. Israel, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, listen to the sorrow and the grief that filled Paul's heart because of Israel. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed for Christ, or from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here's someone who indeed is interceding on behalf of God's ancient people, Israel, praying that God would restore them unto Himself. That God would open the door in their heart to receive, remove the veil that we read about earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from their, from their eyes, that they may see the glory of Christ. And so I ask the question, how much time, men, do we spend praying for our wives? Are we so consumed with the needs of others that we forget about the needs of our wives? Perhaps we don't even know how to pray specifically for our wives because we haven't spent enough time talking with them about their struggles, about the temptations that they face, or about their victories. And so we don't even know how to pray for them because we haven't learned through talking and communicating what we should be praying for on their behalf. If we do pray for the needs of others, how much more we should pray for the needs of our wives because of how nearly and closely we are united together with our wives, men. 
A second duty that follows from the fact that we are to model Christ, who is the Savior of His church, is that a godly husband will endeavor by God's grace to set an example of Christ before her in the way he speaks and behaves toward the Lord, in the way he speaks and behaves toward her, and in the way he speaks and behaves toward others. Thus he will realize that time spent before the Lord in prayer, in studying the Scripture and applying it to the benefit of his own sanctification, cannot be ignored and neglected if he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How will he be able to set an example of godliness before his wife as he is commanded to do, if he himself is not being sanctified, if he himself is not a student of the Word of God, if he himself is not pouring out his, his heart to the Lord and asking God to, to move in his life, if he is not growing in that way, how can he set that example before her? Men, our own haphazard approach to secret worship is indirectly a sin against our wives. For we are not leading them by our example, but we are shirking our duty in secret worship. And that effect is driven home to our wives as well. A third duty with regard to caring for our wives spiritually is that a godly husband will take the time to instruct his wife and to answer her questions about the Word of God. He will indeed be courageous in the truth, but he will also be patient in explaining the truth. He will not be harsh in his approach, to how he teaches, he will be gentle in how he approaches the instruction of his wife. He will make time for it. If it takes 70 times, 7 times to explain a doctrine, he will not berate her or discourage her, but he will continue to teach that same doctrine until she finally has it. Until she finally understands it. I've been touched by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in His ministry to the disciples and how patiently the Lord instructed His disciples who knowing that they didn't understand what was being said. Lord knew that they did not understand what was being said. But He stopped many times because they could not bear it. They couldn't handle anymore. They needed to understand basically what they had already heard and to, to apply that. The Lord, therefore, did not put more upon them at that particular point than they could handle. The patience of our Lord in instructing and caring for His bride. In John sixteen twelve. certainly the Lord does prod us. He does encourage us to grow. We do not want as husbands to simply allow a kind of 
apathy to settle upon the hearts of our wives that they desire nothing of the Spirit of God. But a wise husband knows how much to give his wife at a particular time, how much he can understand, and he continues to work with her at that level. In John 16:12, the Lord said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. You're just not able to bear them at this particular point, the Lord says. And so this patient instruction on the part of husbands to their wives, in so doing, a husband not only builds his wife up in the faith, but he also, this is the other side of this particular coin, not only are we to instruct our wives, but we are also, by our instruction, to protect them and to defend them from all the spiritual enemies that abound. You see, the Lord would have us husbands to be like a shepherd. A shepherd who does not flee when enemies approach the sheep. The Lord says in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, that it's a hireling who flees when he sees the wolf approaching. But it's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And likewise, men, God calls us to be that toward our own wives. Here in our own home, men, is our first and foremost disciple. Above all others with whom we may work in discipling, our wife is the most significant disciple we'll ever have, for she is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Even more foundational is the discipling of our wives than the discipling of our children because of the nearer relationship and because it is she who will spend more time than you with the children. And if you have not properly discipled her, what will she be teaching them? Thus, the necessary duty of the husband to lead his wife and children in daily family worship. There may be times, dear ones, in the course of our lives and in the husband's calling when he will not be able to keep his appointment to lead his family in worship. But that should be extraordinary and not ordinary. But when he is gone, because he has discipled his wife, or because he has discipled an older son, the job continues. The ministry continues to the family because he's done his job as he should. And the children are not left without instruction even when he's gone. In our one of our subordinate standards, the directory for family worship, proved by the Church of Scotland. One of the reasons stated there for family worship, I think, is very interesting. One of the reasons, men, that you are to, to disciple your wives and your children is so that when they come to church on the Lord's Day, that they will benefit more from the public ordinances 
as the word of God goes forth, they will have a greater understanding of what God is saying so they can apply the word more to their lives. So that when they spend time in private and secret worship, it can be more profitable and beneficial to them because they're growing in their knowledge of the Lord and His Word. Do not despise the time that you spend with your wives, men, in discipling them. You are preparing for thousands of generations to come to be properly discipled and instructed. Husbands, if you love your children and care for the souls of your children, I encourage you, love your wives and spend time discipling them, for it is they, as I said, that will spend the vast majority of time with your children. A fourth duty in the spiritual realm. A godly husband will encourage his wife when she struggles. He will not drop her He'll not step away from her, but like Christ, a faithful, godly husband will come up alongside of her to help her, to support her, to lift her up when she falls. Proverbs 17.7, actually that's Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And dear ones, if that is true of a brother, how much more it should be true of a husband. A husband is born for adversity. And his wife faces that. He does not beat her down when she struggles. He does not berate her. He lifts her up. Men, if we are to love our wives as Christ loved His bride, we must be willing to carry them upon our shoulders, to carry their burdens as Christ has carried ours. A wife needs to hear her husband's encouragement. In those duties, she is performing well. She needs to hear that she is doing a good job. She needs to hear these things so that she does not grow discouraged in her work. This is a duty, spiritually, that we owe to our wives. Just two more on the spiritual side and then we'll quickly look at the next main point. A godly husband will also, when it is necessary, reprove his wife but he will do so lovingly and gently for her well-being. Not out of anger, not out of resentment, but he will do so as Christ does the church, because Christ loves the church. We should, at times, men, allow love to cover certain sins. To continue to be ever conscious and critical of every single error that our wives make will not benefit and promote their edification. If that is what they come away believing that my husband is ever so critical, 
Where is the encouragement? If it is so out of balance in that way, we need to adjust that particular perspective. Bring it back into the proper bounds. It's not, again, that we simply allow our wives without reproof to do whatever they want. But we have to decide what is an issue that needs to be reproved and what is another that we need to bear with with regard to a certain weakness on the part of our wives who may be trying but just simply seem to be weak in that area. When correction is needed, then it should be ordinarily done privately and not for the purpose of embarrassing our wives or hurting the one who is loved, but rather for the purpose of building her up and instructing her. Respect for the husband's loving leadership, men, will grow when she is not publicly shamed and humiliated, but is gently corrected, taken away from the children, if at all possible, and corrected in that kind of a context. In reproving men, always look to yourself first and remove the beam from your own eye before you seek to take out the speck that is in your wife's eye. Begin with yourself first. Approach reproof always in humility and not in anger and resentment or a spirit of getting even or in some kind of arrogance or pride. Men, if we do not take the time to build up our wives by encouraging them and that which they should do within the home, letting them hear how much you appreciate their service, balancing reproof with encouragement, it will indeed come across as harsh and uncaring. Let this little refrain that I'm about to give let this refrain not fall from the mouths of our own wives. Oft did I well, and that here I never. Oft did, once did I ill, and that here I ever. Finally, the sixth duty. A godly husband will demonstrate his love for his wife by always seeking reconciliation when division between them has occurred. He should initiate reconciliation. That doesn't mean that a wife cannot do so. She should if he doesn't. Someone should. But men, we are the leaders within our homes. And we ought to initiate reconciliation. And if there is not an initiation on our part, we are sinning. If we do not seek to initiate reconciliation, we have failed in our leadership in that regard. A godly husband who is seeking to love his wife as Christ loves the church will humbly repent of his own sins and errors and will seek her forgiveness when he has sinned against her. And he will joyfully, on the other hand, forgive her 
when she has sinned against him. He will not allow the son to sit upon his wrath, to set upon his wrath. Like Christ, he will ever have his arms extended and open that communion and fellowship may be restored. There may be many other spiritual duties, dear ones, but here is a good start for the husbands in demonstrating and showing love for their wives as Christ has loved the church. The second model that's given by the Apostle Paul is found in Ephesians 5, 28-31. And that model is that husbands are to follow is that of the natural love that men have for their own bodies. We find in that portion of Scripture these words. <clears throat> so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Not only is it the duty of husbands, dear ones, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, but also to love their wives as their own bodies, the Lord says to the Apostle Paul. Whereas the model of Christ's love for the church focuses primarily upon a husband's spiritual duties to his wife, the model of a husband's natural love for his own body focuses rather upon a husband's material and physical duties to his wife. And speaking of a man's love for his body, here, Paul is not addressing some sinful or inordinate love that a man has for his body, but rather he is addressing a natural love of self-preservation that was placed there by God from the very beginning. A love to feed and clothe and shelter the body. Paul now is emphasizing to husbands that just as they care for their own bodies and providing for their bodies all that is needful and all that is profitable. So ought husbands to provide for their wives that which is needful and beneficial to their physical well-being as well. Why? Why is this a duty that husbands owe to their wives? Because the wife is one flesh with her husband. The Apostle says that a husband is to love his wife as his own body because God says they are one flesh. Adam said, this is, my, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For she was taken from me. And so the Lord says, what you do to your wife, men, is what you therefore do to yourself. If you bless her, you bless yourself. If you curse her, you curse yourself. Amen. 
What duties, in part, does this model of love that Paul here mentions compel a husband to perform then? And again, let me mention just a few. Again, not exhaustive, but just a, a few duties. First of all, the duty of providing food and clothing and shelter. Medical attention should go without saying. These things a husband owes to his wife. Both while he's living and as much as he is able to provide for her even before his death, in the event of his death, to provide for her and care for her. To that extent, he should as well perform those duties. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, declares, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Worse than an unbeliever. Men, uh, our wives shouldn't have to beg us for the proper clothing that is needed, for the proper uh, shoes upon their feet. They shouldn't need to beg us for adequate housing or proper hygiene or for the right medical attention. shouldn't have to beg us for those things and continually remind us of those needs. We should be very willing to supply those and, and happy to do so because we care for them as our own body. Secondly, just as a husband is to spiritually protect his wife from enemies, so he is to physically protect her as the weaker vessel as well. This may more often be by means of verbal attacks than by means of physical attacks. But nevertheless, a husband comes to the defense of his wife. A wife should have both confidence, dear ones, and comfort in knowing that her husband stands as a shield to defend her against the malicious words and actions of others. She should be able to trust that her husband will stand before her when that comes her way. Though we cannot defend the, the sins of our wives, if they have indeed sinned against others, we nevertheless can defend their persons. And when anyone would bring accusation against our wives, those accusations should always first go through the husband or at least Permission should first be sought from the husband to speak with your wife. That's the proper order and decorum. How common it is in new marriages for husbands to let down their shield and to allow their wives very often to be attacked by various family members. They may simply be ignorant of what's going on they may be trying to walk a thin line, preserve peace within the family, but dear ones, as husbands, it is our obligation to defend our wives. And we must let even close family members know that if you have something to say 
say it to me and let me respond. Particularly if it's the husband's family. You don't simply throw your wife, men, into the ring to be devoured, as it were, by others. That is not loving your wife as your own body. Thirdly, this being the case, that the husband is appointed to be his wife's shield and protector, how against nature is the abominable practice of some men to strike, slap, beat, threaten, or abuse their wives? To abuse them, whether verbally, to call them every name in the book, to abuse them physically, where they actually strike them, or to abuse them sexually, to use that as a violent means, as a weapon against their wives. How abominable it is, since we are called men to be our wives' protectors, if we, in fact, not only refuse to defend them, but become their aggressor. How contrary to nature. God has stated through the Apostle Peter that because the wife is the weaker vessel, she is to be treated with more care and honor, not with less care and honor. And so how shameful it is to take her who should be under our protective wings and not only to expose her to outside attacks, but for that pain to be inflicted by the one who is to love her and care for her and protect her. William Gouge, an English Presbyterian and Covenanter and Commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, responds in answer to the question, may not then a husband beat his wife? He says, there is no warrant throughout the whole of Scripture by precept or example for it. Which argument, though it be negative, yet for the point in hand is a forcible argument in two respects. Because the Scripture hath so plentifully and particularly declared the several duties of husbands and wives, and yet hath delivered nothing concerning a husband striking and beating his wife. Secondly, because it hath also plentifully and particularly spoken of all such as are to correct, and of their manner of correcting, and of their bearing correction, who are to be corrected, and of the use they are to make thereof and yet not anything at all concerning a husband's punishing or a wife's bearing in this kind. The Scripture being so silent in this point, we may well infer that God hath not ranked wives among those in the family who are to be so corrected or punished. That's from Domestical Duties, page 390. Does a man cherish his own body by beating it, how can he do so to his wife who is one flesh with him? Such is the action not of a man, I submit to you, but of the action of a coward. The Lord extols not harshness or violence in the marriage, but gentleness. Listen to his words. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:24 And the servant of the Lord must not strive 
but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Such acts of violence should not only receive, dear ones, the just censure of the church, but should as well receive the lawful censure of the civil magistrate as well. I do recognize there may be certain circumstances in which a husband may need to defend himself against a violent wife who seeks his life or limb. And she cannot be reasoned with, but first he should seek to escape, to call the civil magistrate, to call the police. And only after that route is closed should he try to restrain her with physical force. A wife who is subjected to physical violence may indeed separate from her husband while such a threat is imminent because she has the right to preserve her own life and the life of her children. But she should also seek to be reconciled to her husband as soon as she is able to do so. The last duty that I would submit to you this Lord's Day is that a godly husband will be faithful to his marriage covenant. He will evidence a sincere affection for his wife and will make a covenant with his eyes not to look with lust upon another woman. That doesn't mean he will perfectly keep that covenant. But when he fails, he will repent of his sin. But he makes a covenant because it is so important to him to be faithful to the woman that he is bound to by covenant. He will not place himself in tempting situations unnecessarily, but will avoid even the appearance of evil. I speak to even elders and ministers who it seems have fallen in these areas to the great offense of the church because they did not take the necessary precautions to avoid tempting situations with other women even when it began in all sincerity in trying to help one who was in need but because they didn't take the proper precaution fell in this area. Seems as though the enemy seeks to overthrow even those who may be faithful in the area of greed and lust. And we must be ever so careful, dear ones, men, uh, ruling elders, teaching elders, that we do not place ourselves in these types of temptations. A godly husband who loves his wife as his own body will flee youthful lusts. He will flee temptation like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. He will leave, if necessary, his garment in her hands, but he will flee. He will guard his mind because, dear ones, that's where the battle is actually waged. 
in the mind. He will guard, he will battle to the very day of his death the lust of the flesh. He will continually avail himself of the mercy of God in Christ. He will go to the Word and be cleansed in the reading of the Word and ask the Spirit of God to grant him victory in that area. He will not simply throw up his hands in surrender and say, I can't win the battle. He will continue to be faithful. He will continue to repent. Because if he wins the battle in the mind, he will win the battle with the eyes. And he will win the battle with his actions and his behavior, if he wins the battle in his mind. But he will also guard himself, his eyes, from all pornography in the internet, or in books or magazines, or in the television, movies, videos. He will guard himself from all immorality. What a travesty of the significance of the marriage covenant when political leaders can deceive people into believing that although they may be unfaithful in the most sacred of human covenants, they will be faithful in the covenant that they make with a nation. The arguments that say it doesn't matter what they do in their private life are foolish and blasphemous. What a man does in his private life with regard to this covenant matters to God to such an extent that God said that one who violates that covenant should be put to death. It matters to God. It undermines not only a marriage, it undermines all society unfaithfulness in this covenant. And it is just warrant for the dissolution of a marriage, according to the word of God. Does that mean it's the unforgivable sin? No. God will forgive even those who have violated their marriage covenant. There will be indeed consequences that flow from it, but God will forgive. And by his grace, He can be restored to the Lord. Husbands, let our faithfulness be not only in the physical realm, but especially in the mental realm. Let us find full contentment with the wife of our youth. I close, dear ones, with a final word to husbands from William Gouge again, Domestical Duties. In regard to the love we should cultivate in our hearts for our wives. He says, In imitation hereof, husbands should love their wives, though there were nothing in wives to move them so to do, but only that they are their wives. Yea, though no future benefit could after be expected from them, true love hath respect to the object which is loved and the good it may do thereunto, rather than to the subject which loveth, and the good that it may receive.
For love seeketh not her own. This is the love, dear ones, which Christ has shown us and which we as husbands are to show to our wives. Please stand with me in prayer. We looked at thee, our Savior, who has purchased us unto himself. Though we were ungodly, though we were undeserving in every way, could lay no claim upon thy salvation. Thou hast looked upon us with pity. Thou hast looked upon us, O Lord our God, and shown mercy toward us. We praise thee for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only has it affected our salvation and brought that about, but we praise thee for the pattern, the model, and the example that has been left for us in Christ, so that we husbands may not walk blindly, but that we may learn how to lead in our homes. We pray, Father, that thou would guide us and direct us, give to the husbands within our congregation. Give to all of those, O Lord, who hear this sermon preached. Give to them the grace to cry out to Thee, that Thou would bless them with that love which Christ had for His church, or a love that is like it. We pray, Father, that Thou would cause us to yearn for that. We pray that we would that we would both care for the spiritual needs of our wives as well as the physical needs of our wives, that we would be to them a protector and defender. We ask, Lord, that thou would bless our families and that as our children behold our marriage, that they would cry out to thee that they might have a marriage like our own. We ask our God that thou would ministers such grace to us not because of our worthiness but because of the worthiness of Christ who loved the church and gave his life for her. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available free and for sale in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.